0: It's just not my choice. I think he's too divisive. He's almost a cult leader, and that bothers me.
1: What comes next after Donald Trump's easy win in South Carolina? For Sunday, February 25th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Just what is going on with the new Major League Baseball uniforms? We'll take a look, but maybe not too close a look at the pants. We'll also explore the
2: rise of social media de-influencers. It's got a little bit more interesting in terms of going, this isn't just about de-influencing, this is about using your influence in the right way. And
1: it's the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, a groundbreaking comedy show that lasted more than 20 years. We will talk to one of the show's most memorable actors.
3: I think that women respond to how she completely embraces her anger.
1: That and more after these news headlines.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Hurst. Former President Donald Trump's victory in the South Carolina presidential primary last night puts him one step closer to winning the Republican nomination. As NPR's Stephen Fowler reports, Trump's allies, though, are pushing challenger Nikki Haley to end her campaign against him, but she says she's staying
5: in. Trump hasn't lost a single contest yet, and more importantly, is far ahead in earning delegates awarded in those races. Georgia Congressman Mike Collins says Haley should drop out and that all signs point to more Republicans voting for Trump in the remaining primary races.
3: It's going to go Trump all the way. There's an electricity in the air. We've been seeing it. We've been feeling this thing since Iowa.
5: Even if Nikki Haley didn't stay in the race, Trump won't likely hit the threshold of delegates to clench the nomination until late March after states like Georgia, Florida and Ohio have weighed in. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Columbia, South Carolina.
4: Ukrainian leaders say delays in Western military aid are hurting Ukraine as it defends itself from Russia in a war that's now entered its third year. And Piers' Joannica Kisses has more from Kyiv.
3: Ukraine's Defense Minister Rustem Umerov told reporters at a forum on Sunday that 50% of military aid to Ukraine does not arrive on time.
0: So basically whatever committed that doesn't come on time
5: will lose people, will lose territories.
3: Umerov said Russia has more money and a much larger arsenal than Ukraine. Oleksandr Komushin, Ukraine's minister of strategic industries, told NPR that his country is rapidly developing weapons of its own. So, at this point, we are quite capable to produce at least the basic range of weapon and ammunition we need, almost three times more then we'll get funds available. He says Ukraine is seeking investment from western allies to help scale up arms production. Joanna Kisses, NPR News, Kiev.
4: After hitting fresh records last week, Wall Street is gearing up for a key economic report due out this week when the Federal Reserve releases its favorite inflation gauge. NPR's Raphael Nam has more.
6: A critical question for markets has been when the Fed will start cutting interest rates. That will depend a lot on inflation. So investors were disappointed when data on consumer prices earlier this month showed inflation running a little hotter than expected. Markets are now bracing for another big inflation report out on Thursday. It's called the Personal Price Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or PCE Price Index. This one is not as well-known as consumer prices, but it is an indicator that's important for the Fed and for markets. Raphael Nam, NPR News.
4: And stocks ended in mixed territory Friday with the Dow up 62, the Nasdaq down 44. You're listening to NPR News.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Outreach workers are raising concerns about increasing cases of overdoses caused by animal tranquilizers. Those drugs are commonly mixed into drugs like fentanyl and heroin, but animal tranquilizers are not opioids, so overdoses cannot be treated with the standard reversal drug. They also cause deep sedation and severe skin wounds. The Boston Globe reports nearly half of the illicit drugs tested by a Brandeis University lab this year contained a tranquilizer. Well, if you've thought about the high cost of energy bills, the State Department of Public Utilities wants to hear from you. The department is collecting public comment through Friday as part of an effort to look into how to improve energy affordability programs. The state estimates that many households that earn 80% or below of the median income level in Massachusetts struggle to pay their energy bills. A real estate developer is pulling plans to build a 22-unit residential complex in Cambridge because of the city's climate policy. The developer had planned to double the existing number of units on a property in Central Square. But he told the Boston Business Journal the city's new climate regulations prevented him from building ground-level units. The climate uh, policy is meant to prevent future flooding issues, but the developer said the project is no longer financially feasible. Boston is expanding its public arts project to the schools. The city is asking for artists to submit their proposals for murals or mosaics that can be created on school buildings, and the deadline for submissions is Wednesday. Karen Goodfellow is Director of Public Art for the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture, and she says students, parents, and teachers will be able to appreciate the new art. In Boston,
7: we've had a real explosion of public art, and we're really excited for that to be happening with schools and with artists who really believe in engagement and talking to kids and talking to families.
5: Once the commissions are awarded, artists will start work this summer, and the goal is to have the public art completed by the start of the new school year. Clear 20s overnight, sunny 30s tomorrow. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation. Committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org.
1: From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. From one primary to another. South Carolina wrapped up its primary last night with a decisive win for former President Donald Trump. But his remaining opponent, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, is not letting defeat get her down, even if it came in her home state. Now it's on to Michigan, where the campaigns have just a few days to regroup, and Democrats have their say as well. Joining me now is NPR Sarah McCammon, who just traveled back from South Carolina, as well as Elena Moore, who's in Detroit. Hey to both of you. Hi, Scott. Hi there. So, Sarah, I'm going to start with you. As widely predicted, Trump won South Carolina by a pretty wide margin. Let's talk about what happened.
8: Yeah, no one expected Nikki Haley to win, but the question was really how badly she would lose. Of course, she is the former governor of South Carolina. She'd spent a lot of money and time campaigning in her home state. If anybody could take on Trump in South Carolina, you'd think it would be Nikki Haley. But last night, everyone got the answer that most people had been anticipating. Trump gave a victory speech in Columbia where he said that the Republican Party is unified.
5: I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Never been like that.
1: I mean, Sarah, even if it was expected, losing her home state in that way is a setback. What is Haley saying about the results?
8: Well, Scott, she doesn't think the party is as unified behind Trump as he says it is. Her campaign just announced they've raised a million dollars since yesterday's primary from small donor supporters, a sign that there's still support for her to keep going, they say. And speaking to supporters last night in Charleston, Haley pointed to the results in her home state and said that while she was not able to win, she did win over a notable percentage of voters, around 40%. Mm -hmm. And she said those numbers indicate that there's frustration among voters about the options they're being given.
4: I couldn't be more worried about America. It seems like our country is falling apart. But here's the thing. America will come apart if we make the wrong choices.
8: Haley says voters deserve a choice. But so far, Scott, most Republican voters are choosing Trump.
1: Yeah. Alana, shifting to you, the next primary is just two days away in Michigan. What's going on there?
6: Well, you know, Michigan may be a really important swing state in the general election, but right now it doesn't seem like there's a lot of candidate buzz. Nikki Haley has two rallies planned in the state, but of course, you know, former President Trump is dominating an average state polling here and neither Trump or Biden have any public appearances announced in Michigan ahead of Tuesday, which is kind of notable given that this is a state that was key to Trump's victory in 2016 and Biden's in 2020.
1: Right, and by a pretty small margin each time, but, but Speaking Mm -hmm. of Biden, he is, as you said, on the ballot. He is expected to win easily, but he's facing opposition there. uh, And there are real questions about how broad it may end up being. Explain what's going on.
6: Right. So, over the past month, there's been a growing write in campaign called Listen to Michigan. It was started largely by younger Arab and Muslim American organizers in Dearborn who oppose Biden's handling of Israel's war in Gaza. And the goal is really to get folks to write in uncommitted on the ballot as a form of a protest vote. You know, organizers tell me this campaign was kind of. You know, it's grown beyond just the Arab and Muslim communities here in Southeast Michigan. And it's really about changing Biden's policy, not necessarily, you know, swearing him off in November. What they want is Biden to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and halt aid to Israel. And so, you know, I talked with 26-year-old Bianca Garcia about this. She's a Jewish-Latino student at Wayne State University. And she told me she plans to vote uncommitted on Tuesday because of Biden's handling on this issue. I'm not like rah-rah excited to vote for Biden, but I, I'm hoping that this uncommitted campaign can send a message to him that where I feel confident in voting for him um, in the November election. You know, and she told me that voting for Biden, you know, which she did in 2020, to be clear, was never an easy decision. But when she looks at Trump and his policies, she didn't really have much of a choice.
1: Yeah. So, Sarah, you spent a lot of time in South Carolina doing the best thing that we can do to understand elections, and that's talk to actual voters. Uh, what, (laughs) What can the conversations that you had tell us about the types of people voting for Trump versus voting for Haley?
8: So the Haley voters I met, are they're concerned about the direction of the country. There were many Republicans, of course, also some independents, and at least one Democrat I met who decided to vote for Haley because South Carolina has that open primary system. But most Haley voters are Republican, or at least Republican-leaning. They tend to say they disagree with President Biden on policy, see him as weak, and they want a Republican, but they don't want Donald Trump. I met Betty Breedlove at a Haley rally outside of Charleston on Friday night.
0: Trump is just not my choice. I think he's too divisive. He's almost a cult leader, and that bothers me.
8: On the other hand, she thinks Haley can bring the country together, and she wants someone younger to lead the country. But, you know, Scott, I asked Breedlove if it's Trump or Biden in the general election what she would do. She hesitated, and then Mm -hmm. she said said Trump sounds like a cult leader to her, but she would probably vote for him, even though it would
1: hurt. Interesting. All right. So again, uh, Tuesday is one of these days where you both have the Democratic and Republican primary at the same time. Hasn't always been the case. So let's flip back to Democrats here. Elena, with the general distrust of Biden among young progressives in Michigan, what effect might that have on the results?
6: Well, you know, Scott, Arab American and Muslim American voters were key to Biden's win in Michigan in 2020. And so were young voters for that matter. But, you know, for some Michiganders in the state now, they tell me they're more committed to voting uncommitted than for Biden. Hmm. You know, for others, there's also just this general disappointment in Biden as the 2024 choice. You know, I, I talked with 24 year old PhD student Keon Harris at the University of Michigan about this. He's actually from Detroit and says that he voted for Biden in 2020 also, but in this primary, you know, he also wrote in uncommitted. So I asked him how he was feeling.
9: More hopeless than last time, I'll say. It it reminds me of 2016, so the rise of Trump. It doesn't feel too good with war and poverty and all things going on.
6: And Scott, I've been talking with young folks on campuses and around Ann Arbor, Detroit, and Dearborn for the past few days. And, you know, not everybody knows about this uncommitted push. Mm -hmm. Some don't even know about the primary. But one thing that they mostly all had in common, they are not enthusiastic about their 2024 options.
1: And Sarah, we got about 15 seconds. What do we need to know about Michigan and Republicans? Is it a big deal or are they looking ahead to Super Tuesday?
6: Really,
8: for Super Tuesday, the big question is how long Haley stays in the race, how long she drags it out for Trump. He wants to wrap this up, but she's not ready to.
1: All right, that's Sarah McCammon as well as Elena Moore. Thanks to you both.
6: Thank
8: Thank you. you.
1: Over the years, baseball players' pants have gone through a lot of different style changes. Stirrups had their moments, so did knee-high socks. There was an era of baggier pants, too. This year, at Major League Baseball Spring Training, there is a new trend, and it is the talk of the league. See-through pants. That is right see-through pants the trend was absolutely not intentional and it is one of many issues with the brand new uniforms mlb's teams were issued this season this needs more context and we will get it from connor mcknight who hosts the pre and post game shows for the white Sox radio network on chicago's espn 1000 connor it is a delight to have you on all things considered
9: scott thanks so much for having me i hope i can bring some transparency to the issue (laughs) let's let's talk about these pants you have seen them in person at spring training are they as bad as people are saying? I didn't think that they were when I saw them in person. And having watched a couple of games on television here, some spring training games, I didn't see quite the issue that we all saw during the bright lights of photo and media day last week. So everyone knows teams and players go through an entire day where photos are taken that will be used for the rest of the season. The mug shots you'll see up on the scoreboard, for instance, or promotional things or something like that. Now, those lights are brighter, they're professional photo lights, and you can absolutely make out far too much of the jersey that's <laughs> tucked into the pant, or perhaps even the label of underwear that your former player has been wearing on that day. So yeah, it's a thing. And those pictures rocketed around the
1: internet, but, but the broader thing is here, it's not just the see-through pants, right? Like these uniforms, they just look cheap. What is going on? How would you describe how different they look this year?
9: They look like the uniforms that fell off the back of the truck and were sold just around the corner from where your favorite ball team (laughs) plays. They look like knockoffs, Scott. That's the weird part of this whole thing. But the the end-of-the-day story, what it looks like to fans is – Like the uniform your uncle got you a couple Christmases ago and you don't wear anymore because the kids make fun of you at school.
1: And yet these uniforms are still being sold for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So a lot of fans are mad. But I think one of the more interesting stories here is that the players
9: are mad too. How would you describe the players' reaction to all of this? Anywhere from incensed to really embarrassed. When you're on display for the nation and your fans to watch, you don't want to be quite as on display as a lot of players have been over the last week or so. We've got stories of teams going through old boxes to find last year's pants to wear during spring training games. We've got outright refusals by players to wear these uniforms. Guys with a you know more ample backside or what have you need a different set of pants than a taller, thinner pitcher might, for instance, and that's not going on right now. That is what has players as upset as anything else
1: the baseball community has a long tradition of being cranky about any sort of change. Like last year's rules changes, people ended up pretty happy with it. Is this that situation or is this no, there are just cheap uniforms and it's a problem?
9: Well, you're right about the birthright crankiness that most MLB fans have. It is part and parcel of being a baseball fan. But no, I, I think this actually is an issue because... You know, when you go out to play in your 12-inch Sunday afternoon men's league in a softball game or something, you wear a certain kind of uniform and it looks a certain kind of way, and you feel just a little bit weird wearing that uniform because it's not, as you know, as a baseball fan, a major league uniform. And we have years of tradition of watching players look a certain way. I I think what fans will notice right away is that the lettering, whether it's the logo, whether it's the team name or city or name across a player's back, it's not stitched on anymore. It's, it's a different application method, and that makes it look like a basketball warm-up more than it does a baseball
1: jersey. That's Connor McKnight, who covers the Chicago White Sox for Chicago's ESPN 1000. Thanks, Connor. Scott, anytime. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News, and I'll just say the NPR softball team's uniforms, they look good.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm John Carpillio. Glad you're with us. And we'll have clear skies overnight with temps dropping to the 20s. Sunny skies tomorrow, mid-30s, and sunshine 30s on Tuesday.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington, with John Proctor is the villain, training a contemporary lens on The Crucible now through March 10th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org.
5: Tomorrow morning on WBUR, Nikki Haley vowing to compete in Massachusetts during Super Tuesday. Haley's prospects and Trump's big advantage among Bay State Republicans tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your weekend right here with us.
4: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former President Trump's allies are pushing Nikki Haley to end her campaign for the Republican nomination. This after Trump won the primary in Haley's home state of South Carolina yesterday. Haley says she's staying in. Ukraine's defense minister says half the promised Western military support fails to arrive on time, complicating the jobs of military planners. This as President Zelensky says 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed since Russia invaded. And at the weekend box office, the biopic of Bob Marley, One Love, took the top spot again with an estimated $13 million in its second weekend. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
1: It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Even if you don't spend a lot of time on social media, you probably know what an influencer is. They partner with brands from Amazon to Louis Vuitton to promote goods and services to their followers, convincing them to buy everything from $40 insulated Stanley mugs to slimy, stale mucin moisturizer. Yeah. But in the last few years, a new trend has emerged, de-influencers, who urge their followers not to buy all the stuff the internet has to offer because overconsumption doesn't just have a negative effect on our wallets. It's also the planet and the climate. So can convincing people to buy less actually help with climate change? And just how effective are de-influencers at convincing us that less is better? I put those questions to Solitaire Townsend. She's a sustainability expert co-founder of the change agency Futera, also author of the book, The Solutionist, How Businesses Can Fix the Future. I started our conversation by asking her to define being a sustainability expert.
2: Um, it's actually quite difficult being a sustainability expert (laughs) because people expect you to sort of be the high priestess of all of this and they apologise about their recycling when you go to their houses and sort of point out all the ways they're not sustainability um, perfect. So I've got a master's degree in environmental science. I've spent the last 20 years working with big brands and governments and communities on how we can live in a more sustainable way. Um, But one thing is I'm not perfect on this and I know that nobody else is perfect on this. And so my business and my book is all about how this bunch of really imperfect people can try to make a bit of a better world. Yeah.
1: So many things on social media are just sped up and more intense versions of, of what's happening in real life, right? And and certainly the consumption on social media is that because you can see somebody try to sell you something and it's just one or two clicks away, it's on its way to your house. You know, I... I've bought a lot of things I don't need on Instagram that seem really practical in the moment. Uh, <laughs> but this also coincides with things happening in the real world. And, and given, given your work of sustainability, how did you respond to this moment when de-influencing became the hot thing on TikTok and other social media platforms? People, people making content trying to get people to buy less things.
2: So really exciting. And also only one part of the story. So you're absolutely right, Scott. De-influencing, big conversation, let's do less, let's do less, let's do less. But there's actually a whole lot of things we need to do more of. So one of the things which we started doing was reaching out to a lot of these fantastic creators and saying, if you want to talk a little bit less about what to buy, can we talk a little bit more about how to live? Can we talk about sustainable lifestyles? And so what's happening now is that folks are beginning to do both. It's got a little bit more nuanced. It's got a little bit more interesting in terms of going, this isn't just about de-influencing. This is about using your influence in the right way.
1: And what are some ways that, that what's going on indeed influencing ties into big questions about climate and, and how to live more sustainably for the climate?
2: So for many of us, like, you know, we've known for a really long time that, you know, we've got to do our recycling. Maybe we've got to be a bit more careful with energy about how we travel, about how we eat. But the science right up until recently wasn't backing that and then just in the last couple of years the intergovernmental panel on climate change these are the all scientists from all over the world they're sort of the gurus of of what's actually happening out there on um, on climate they included a chapter in the most recent report on social, cultural and behavior change in short that means that what all of us people what all of us consumers what all of us um normal folks can do is we can make a real difference on climate change and they identified a whole set of behaviors which if done at scale if most of us did them, would save 5% of demand-side carbon. Now, that doesn't sound like very much, 5%, until you realise that the entire airline industry is only 2.5%. So this is now huge. We've all got a role. And in that report, they mentioned influencers. They actually talked about the role of influencers and media in helping all of us to try to make some of these changes. And I understand
1: Futera has done research on the effect that influencers and content creators can have here. Can you, can you tell us what specifically you found?
2: Absolutely. So working with various other partners, we were like, well, let's actually ask some creators what they think about some of this. And vast majority of social media creators, like these these, uh, folks you watch online who are talking about shopping, who are talking about makeup, who are talking about food, who are talking about their kids, 76% of them really want to talk about sustainability more in their content. And uh, over 96% of them say that when they do talk about this, that they get really positive engagement, that of us who are following them really want them to help us with this. They want us to show them what to do. We, we want them to model these behaviors.
1: You know, when you look at a lot of steps that people can take when it comes to climate, there's a criticism that there's steps that are a lot easier to take if you're more well-off, right? It's expensive to put solar panels on your house. It's expensive to buy an electric car. What do you make of that criticism when it comes to the area that we're talking about here, people offering you more sustainable uh, products on the Internet or are arguing about ways that you can change your online shopping habits on TikTok to be more sustainable?
2: I think there's a bit of a danger that lots of people are trying to sell us ways to save ourselves from out of sustainability. You can't you can't buy your way out of sustainability alone. Like of course we need to change our purchasing habits, but one of the things which uh we saw within the de-influencing trend was people saying, "Hey, yeah, consumption is bad. Buy this product instead." Um and there's, you know, there's a bit of an irony within that. So we've got to be really careful of the fact that actually sustainability doesn't just become an additional consumption trend where we're buying everything which we're already buying and now we're buying more sustainable products on top what you want to do is you want to try to swap things out so find a sustainable version of what you've already got swaps rather than additional purchases because i don't want folks to lose money trying to be sustainable you shouldn't have to do that not least because so many of the things which we need to do for sustainability insulation changing how we travel um, changing our diet, they should actually save you money instead of being additional purchases. Yeah.
1: Do you see any downsides here when we're talking about this de influencing trend?
2: Uh, <laughs> I think the, the downside I see is trend. Trend. You know, this is a long-term change that we need to make to how our systems work and how we behave. But this is most definitely not a trend. And I think that's one of the things which we've got to be really careful on in social media is that this is a long-term support. And that's one of the things the creators can really, really do is to do this consistently over time until it's part of their lifestyles and helping it to be part of ours, um, which you know we all know that the habits can take a long time to change. They don't change in a trend. Yeah, I actually want to see de-influencing becoming sustainable living.
1: That's Solitaire Townsend, the co-founder of Futera. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Language researchers just released the latest version of the Ethnologue, which aims to catalog the state of all of the world's languages, all 7,164 of them. Many of these languages are endangered. Some have so few native speakers that you can count them on one hand. In the U.S., for instance, 193 of the 197 living languages are endangered, and one of those languages is Caddo. The native language of the Caddo Nation, a tribe native to the area where Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Arkansas meet. There are just two fluent Caddo speakers left, and they're both now in their 90s. But a younger generation is working to reclaim their native tongue. Elena Talate is Caddo, and she's the language preservationist for the Caddo Nation. Elena, welcome to All Things Considered.
0: See that Wawa. Thank you, Scott. My name is Elena Talate. I live in Oklahoma City, and I'm learning Kata language from our elders.
1: Tell me how you first became interested in this work of preserving this language.
0: I first became interested when I was a kid. My heroes are my great grandparents who were Caddo speakers from there. My interest grew. I went and studied native American language revitalization at the university of Oklahoma. And today I'm employed by my tribe, the Caddo nation of Oklahoma to hopefully bring our language back.
1: I mean, I guess, I guess it's, it's maybe a straightforward answer of, of there's just a handful of people left who could speak it. But, but why did that jump out to you as this is what I need to focus my time on? This is what I need to focus my energy on, preserving this language.
0: Our language encodes so much information about our history, our spirituality who we are, our cultural values. So when we're mm-hmm. able to preserve our language, we're able to preserve other aspects of our culture as well.
1: Can you help me understand how you go about doing this? How do you and other preservationists try to, to save and then spread a language that has been dwindling in terms of the number of people who are still speaking it and understanding it?
0: There's a couple of different approaches. I think here at the Caddo Nation, we try and go the preservation and revitalization route so, preservation entails documenting and archiving the history, stories, language, songs, and culture, typically from our knowledge keepers, most of which are quite elderly now. The other approach is revitalization, which protects a language's future by creating new speakers. And we're trying to do this in a couple of different ways here at the Cato Nation, but the main way is through community-based language classes, which I teach um, to our elders, to our kids, and on Zoom. How's that going? It's going excellent. It's going so much better than I initially expected. I was a little bit worried that our community uh, wouldn't catch on, but there's so much passion, there's so much drive, and I have to give it to our community we're working together and we're making such amazing progress
5: what are
1: some of the ways that you encourage people whether it's one-on-one or whether it's teaching classes because you know learning a language can be really hard it can be really discouraging sometimes
0: i try to encourage people by reminding them that um, we're all learning here together and we really can't do this without each other just letting people know that any anxieties that they might feel are natural we wouldn't be hard on a little baby who's learning their first language, so why would we be hard on ourselves for learning our language? It's something that we should all be proud of. We know that our ancestors are cheering us on.
1: I hadn't heard language learning framed that way before. That's a really great way to think about it. You you introduced yourself in CADO, and we'd love to hear more of it spoken. I understand you, you brought a short story with you to share with us?
0: Sure. I think I'll tell them. A... A short kid's story about how the turtle got its squares. So a long time ago there was no water, there was a drought, and all of the animals had a council concerning where did all of the water go. So they made a plan, each animal would go in different directions to search for water they agreed that if anyone found some water they would holler and tell the others where it was the turtle went along and as he went along he got stuck on a log and couldn't get down he started yelling help help the other animals heard him yelling believing that he had found water they stampeded and trampled him and his shell was covered in all of their footprints and that's the story of how the turtle got its squares.
1: What's your favorite part of learning and speaking Caddo? Is it is it the language itself? Is it is it the 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 history it ties it to? Is it discovering stories like this?
0: I think my favorite part about our language is that I honestly think it's the most beautiful language in the world. I'm a little biased though, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but the other part that I love about learning our language, like you said, is. Um, the deep meanings behind it and the insights that it can give us about our worldview and how we think about, talk about, and relate with each other and our land and how it all just ties everything together, I suppose.
1: That's Elena Tallate, language preservationist for the Cato Nation. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Scott.
1: Long before smartphones made finding out the time or temperature as easy as glancing at your screen, you could pick up your landline, that was the thing, and call time and temp. Cities all across the country had their own numbers that were operated by local banks or phone companies. A lot of the numbers ended up in 1010 or 1212, including here in Washington. Tana Weingartner, member station WVXU in Cincinnati, reports that while the concept may seem outdated, the service still exists.
10: When I was a kid back in the 80s, I remember my dad teaching me to call the local time and temperature line. Eventually, smartphones came around and I started calling the number less and less, but I still dial it every now and then, mostly to see if it still works. Recently, I started asking around if anyone else remembered calling them.
9: That's like one of the first phone numbers
10: we learned as a kid. That's Dwayne Moore. He's 49 and instantly knew what I was talking
9: about. It was like my parents' house, my grandparents' house, time and temperature. Not necessarily in that order. I think I learned time and temperature first and still know it to this day. But that's coming out of the 70s. That's how it was then.
10: So the weather lines have actually been around for generations. Lauren Bruce has worked for the weather lines for the past 15 years, doing just about everything but recording the forecasts. So if people needed to know about urgent weather that was coming, they installed these weather lines all across the country to check and see, do we need to evacuate? Is something big coming? Bruce says people used to rely on them all the time, not just during storms. Popularity peaked in the 1990s, but Bruce says there are still millions of calls annually, especially in Ohio, where people called the weatherline 295,000 times just last January. And a surprising number of those callers were younger than you might think a large percentage of our callers actually were in the 30 to 35 and then the 35 to 40 and the 40 to 45 age group bruce says they don't fully know why the weather line is so popular with this crowd but nostalgia seems pretty likely that's the case for me and anecdotally i've heard about people handing out the weather line when asked for their phone number like in a bar or when filling out random forms thank you for calling the weather service
5: Here's the latest weather forecast for Cincinnati for Friday, February This is the
10: voice of Keith Allen. He's one of the last real live people recording the weather for Clearly IP. AI is taking over.
5: The product that I put out, uh, I'm very proud of, and I I want it to be accurate because people plan their lives hearing my voice.
10: Allen's 82 and lives in suburban Washington, D.C. He does forecasts for more than 20 cities across the country.
5: They plan their days on what to wear. If there's dangerous weather, ice, snow, people are going to be more cautious.
10: Allen is quick to point out he's not a meteorologist, he's just obsessed with weather. He gets raw data from NOAA and has spent time learning about different weather patterns and peculiarities in each city he covers. He even sometimes uses online traffic cameras to see how things are looking. Of course, before the live streams, he had to get a little creative.
5: What I would do is I would just call a number at random in those cities and, you know, tell them, oh, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong number. Uh, By the way, how's the weather there in Cincinnati?
10: alan has been voicing the weather for decades. He says it's a calling. So maybe next time, before you click the weather app, go old school and dial time and temp. For NPR News, I'm Tana Weingartner.
1: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
3: Just go to WBUR.org.
5: And this indeed is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpelio. Thanks for being with us. Up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Becoming a Man at ART, a new play from acclaimed author P. Carl and Tony Award-winning director Diane Paulus, now through March 10th.
5: amrep.org. Clear skies overnight, chilly, temps dropping into the uh, 20s. And then sunshine returns tomorrow with a temperature in the mid to upper 30s. More of the same on Tuesday, sunshine 30s. 34 degrees now in Boston.
4: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former President Donald Trump's allies are pushing Nikki Haley to end her campaign for the Republican nomination. This after she won the primary in Haley's home state of South Carolina yesterday. Congress is back in session this week after taking a two-week vacation, and their top job will be to avoid a partial government shutdown this week. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says an Israeli military offensive in Rafah could be delayed somewhat if a deal for a weeks-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is reached. And in California, a hearing will be held tomorrow on whether a former FBI agent should stay in jail while he awaits trial. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Smartmouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours. Smart Mouth mouthwash, toothpaste, and more can be found nationwide at stores or at smartmouth.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org
1: this is all things considered from npr news i'm scott detrow for over 20 years the hit hbo comedy curb your enthusiasm has been making its fans squirm and gasp and laugh their heads off and throughout that long run actress and comedian susie Esman has been the heart of what makes the show so special Fans cannot get enough of her character Susie Green's roller coaster relationship with her husband, Jeff, and his best friend, Larry David.
0: Great, Larry.
3: It's sick, Jeff. All right, you know what, Larry? I can handle this. He's my husband. Jeffrey! Oh. Larry, what the hell did you do to my picture? And now the
1: show is currently in its 12th and final season. So when we spoke, I asked Susie Espen what it feels like to wind down the show after so long.
3: It feels great in a way. I mean, I, I I'm so, oh God, I don't want to sound so Pollyanna-ish, but I feel so privileged to have been a part of this show all this time. Yeah. To actually, as an actress, as a comedian to get a job on a show that I would actually watch. You know, I would have taken any job in 2000 on any crappy sitcom that was on the air where I could make money. But that I got so lucky to be on a show that I actually would watch and and love and be a part of the, the creative process with a brain like Larry, it's just been pure joy. And I feel more joy about it being over than kind of sorrow, really. It's just, I just feel so lucky to have been a part of it.
1: I like that mindset because we don't get much uh, Pollyanna-ish on Curb.
3: (laughs) No, you get no Pollyanna-ish on Curb.
1: Like you said, this show started in 2000. uh, At that point on HBO, it's in the shadow of The Sopranos and Sex and the City. Was there a moment in the early seasons where you knew, wait a second, this thing has legs, maybe not 23 years legs, but this is a good show. This show can stick around as long as it wants.
3: Well, in the beginning, we were kind of like the ugly stepchild, you know, that's what we felt like. You know, we were were, uh, their little experiment, their little comedy experiment. And we had no budget. We didn't even have trailers. It was just this kind of slapdash operation. But around season three, anecdotally, I started noticing people stopping me in the street in New York. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started thinking, you know, maybe there's something going on here with this show, but I never, I had no contract in those days. I had no idea if the show was coming back or if I was coming back or, you know, what was gonna happen. Tell us about your relationship
1: with this, this character you've inhabited and how, maybe how it's changed over the years or, or what sticks out to you about Susie Green?
3: You know, what sticks out to me about Susie Green is what I think resonates with people. People always think it's the language, but I think it's her comfort with her anger. I think that women respond to how she completely embraces her anger. She doesn't feel bad about it. She doesn't feel like she's not being a a good little girl, you know, and I think that it's given people, women especially, permission to feel their anger because, I mean, I don't know about you, Scott, but I'm in a rage all day long. Me
1: me too. I never get to deal with it like Susie does or like Larry does.
3: That's the whole thing. It's the release. Larry and I have never, in all of these years, discussed the character. It just kind of evolved in this very organic way. We've never, to this day, discussed the character or our relationship.
1: I mean, that improv is such a part of the show's lore. It's something that that the people who watch it love about it. It's something I know you and and Larry and the other cast members are asked a lot uh, about, I'm wondering, over the years, did the way you approach that change? Did you become more self-aware? Like, oh, this this, this show is special because of that freedom. Did you think about it differently because of that?
3: No, uh, it, 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 that hasn't changed at all. I think what's changed is my appreciation of how extraordinary of, of an opportunity it is. Because I don't know any other job I could have had that I would have been so much a part of writing what goes onto the screen.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's such a collaboration, how anybody who acts on Curb is a part of the process, is a part of the creative process in a way that you're not on any other show that you, you're given a script. So it's it's just completely joyous and, and there's a freedom to it that unfortunately, I don't know that I'll ever have that opportunity again because people try to do Curb-like kinds of shows and they don't have Larry's story brain. Larry's brilliance, there's so many levels of Larry's brilliance, but I think that the main thing about Larry is his story brain. He has such a sense of story. And if you take apart each episode, you see how densely woven the stories are.
1: Do you have a favorite scene or a favorite moment or episode from over the years?
3: Oh God, I have so many. There are just so many. Uh, Probably my favorite is probably from the doll, which is season two, the driveway (laughs) scene. Because that was when I think the relationship was really established between Susie and Larry and Jeff. You see how they live in fear of her. The kid is home hysterical because her doll, Judy, has been decapitated. Because you two sickos took the head for God knows what reason. Some voodoo you're doing. Where is it? And that was the first time that spaghetti western music was played as kind of my theme song. Where's the head? So that's probably my favorite.
1: There were a few questions that I felt like I had to ask you. And of course, I do have to ask about Susie's outfits. They're so off the wall from flowers to cheetah prints to bright colors. What do you think that tells us about her personality, her character?
3: Well, from my point of view, I kind of created that look to begin with. And it was just then our our wardrobe designers, uh, Leslie Schilling and before her, Christina Mangini, they just took it to another level. But the idea that I had for Susie's wardrobe was that I wanted, you know, you don't want to play yourself. I mean, some people do. I have no interest in playing myself. I'm with myself all day long. I wanted to play a character who, I just, you know, just had this idea about her that she was incredibly confident. She never questions herself in her wardrobe, in her behavior, in her opinions. She just completely believes that she's right. And she's completely confident that she looks fabulous and she could go out there with these crazy outfits looking just incredibly gorgeous all the time. That's her perception. The fact that she looks deranged half the time is another issue.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think Susie stuck around with these guys for so long? Her husband cheats on her, her husband's best friend. She hates the guy. Like, why do you think she didn't just say, like, get lost?
3: I, I have to I have well, first of all, because they kept on casting me, yeah. but I have to have to say that that's not really true. She doesn't hate Larry.
1: You don't think she
3: doesn't hate Larry. She and Larry have a very kind of family, brother-sister relationship where you know she'll scream at him, you're banned, get out of the house, and the next day she'll just say, Hey, lad, want to come to a dinner party? All is forgiven all the time. She doesn't hate him. She accepts him as just a part of her life. And why doesn't she leave Jeff? Well you know, she makes Jeff pay. Jeff cheats on her. He's got to buy her a new house. He's got to buy her a new diamond ring. He's got it. That's her, that's her MO.
1: Well, I think the audience has been glad she stuck around.
3: Yes, I've been glad she stuck around.
1: <laughs> well, Susie Essman, I have enjoyed Susie Green so much over the years and it was it was great to to talk to you. That's Susie Essman who plays Susie Green on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is airing its final season on HBO now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. And sticking with funny people, the comedian and actress Jenny Slate has range, from in-your-face characters like Mona Lisa Saperstein in Parks and Rec to voicing the gentle and deeply introspective Marcel Shell with shoes on in the Oscar-nominated animated film. And now on stage in her recent special, she finds a sweet spot between those extremes. A comedian who's clearly at home in front of a crowd, but also lets you in on her insecurities.
11: Like my feelings are too much and they happen too immediately and nobody wants to deal with them and nobody will ever be able to give me the amount of love that I need in order to actually feel loved. because most people receive love and they hold it in their hearts like a bowl. But for me, I'm more like a colander or a strange felt hat that just leaks away.
1: My colleague Rachel Martin spoke with Jenny Slade about her newest special. It's called Seasoned Professional.
12: I know you're not taking yourself seriously with this title. No. But at this stage no. of your life and career, Jenny, you are a seasoned professional. You know that.
11: Yeah, it's sort of like giving yourself a tuxedo because someone says it's time. Um, <laughs> and that it's, you're like, oh, I guess I'll wear this now. But it doesn't, you know, feel like normal clothes. Mm-hmm. But I I think like most people can deal with imposter syndrome or whatever. And um, I went to a hypnotist many years ago about probably like a decade ago to try to get rid of my stage fright
5: Mm. and it
11: kind of like worked but didn't work but one of the things that he i guess um sort of planted in my mind that i do say before i go out every single time is i'm a seasoned professional and i am
12: you say that like as a mantra to yourself to remind yourself
11: yeah it just kind of comes out i mean not that i'm like totally in a trance but um yeah i say i'm a seasoned professional uh a lot of times going on stage feels like a little more controlled than whatever the definition of chaos is. Like it's just a, a little bit better than chaos. yeah. I also
12: get the sense from you, though, that you sort of like to occupy that space that's not chaos, but it's just a notch below. Mm-hmm.
11: Like, that's
12: like a magic place,
11: yeah, it is. it's it's not super comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. but it's not deathly or anything. I just only realized recently that it doesn't have to be totally gnarly. It actually doesn't have to be um, just throwing yourself into something and hoping something catches you. Like You are allowed to retain some of the mystery, that uh, live wire energy, and still be a little bit more supported in your professional um, protocol. And that for me means... You know, don't just improvise a whole set based off of scribbles on a piece of paper, um, and be two and a half beers in. Like maybe <laughs> one beer and a plan that you um will try to yeah. stick to while allowing for space to wander. Yeah. There's a is a big difference there actually. Yeah,
12: totally. No, I get that completely. Um, how did you decide what stories to tell in in this special? I mean there's there's a lot of material. You've lived a lot of life. Lots of things have
11: happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm 400 years old. So there's that's a right. lot. A, you know, it's like you look fantastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you should
12: talk about your skincare regime.
11: I know. Well, that's what everyone wants to know, <laughs> just about my epidermis, and that was the 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 that was the title, the the understudy. My title. epidermis. <laughs> yeah, my epidermis by. Jenny Slate, PhD. <laughs> but um, I, I'm 41 and a half.
12: Congratulations! Thank
11: you so much. Um, my head is still on my body, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a like living in a sarcophagus yet. I'm still going, <laughs> still ticking. But I just—it's the first time in my life that I—I I really do feel uh, rather safe, where I'm, I'm not like, oh my goodness, why did I choose that? What's wrong with me? But I'm. I'm really like within my challenges and i'm working and and i wanted to be like what how did i get here because this is better than i ever thought it would be and so i realized that i keep telling a love story kind of in reverse like starting with the like birth of my daughter and then reversing all the way back to how i decided to trust in the developing love that i have with my husband Mm -hmm. and um I was interested in telling that story because a lot of the elements of the story sound like pieces of a disaster um or just weirdness but in fact for me they are the elements of um a living a living romance and personal success.
12: Hmm. I love that and I'm so happy that you're in that place.
11: <laughs> it's cool.
12: Yeah, it's really cool. Um you talk about this and your special I, I, I mean having a kid everyone says it changes everything it cha- you know it changes your life and your perspective and you love so big all that is true but I feel like you are a person who would also appreciate that it is just a major trip to look at another human and be like I made you you're a, you this you this human yeah and now you exist outside my body
11: yeah it does still feel like, I'm like, it wasn't me. Like, I did it. Like, I, it's hard to wrap my mind around it. And, like, I was pregnant for a long time and I understood that I was. But, like, even on the way to the hospital, when my body was, like, really hurting and stuff was starting to leak out, (laughs) I was just like, kind of feels like someone's gonna sub in here, though now that my daughter you know she's 3 years old and the other day she said big planets are wonderful and i just was like how did you learn how to what like it's it's like it's like you've I mean this sounds so degrading towards her but I don't mean it to be I just mean I'm just trying to like sort of shine a light on the 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 miracle of it is that it's almost as if a, I had a pet that started talking like it <laughs> right. was already enough yes. that she was here right you know and then like I was like drinking chocolate milk with her and she said are you enjoying that <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, girl. Like, I am. I freaking love chocolate milk, and you know it. Are you enjoying yours? It's just like, what is this? This is so weird. You were not here before.
3: Yeah, I know.
11: I also am constantly reminding myself that, like, a three-year-old doesn't have a fully developed, like, whatever, prefrontal cortex or something. You know, so it's right. like they can't – they don't have impulse control and it's like being around someone who's really drunk or just tripping so hard. And you and it's crazy sometimes because you're like, you just said that you want to go to the park, but you took all your clothes off. And like, you know, I would never say this to her. And I don't know if you can say this on your show, but there's a part of you that's like, you're yourself over right now, hun. Right. You know, like, we're not going to get there if you're naked. It's not going to happen. And it's like, look, I. I wish we could go naked like I mean I don't actually want anyone to see what I have going on right now like I don't I don't I don't want a physical body at all at this point I would I would love to be just a collection of fallen leaves uh but like I get it I get it Jenny Slate
12: her most recent special is called seasoned professional it's streaming now on prime video and it is so worth your time Jenny Slate thank you so much